Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, everyone. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in Engrave.io shop with the code RealVision. Now to the top analysis of today's markets. What are the market factors at play? And boy, are there a lot of them. Welcome to Real Vision Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. It's Monday, January 22nd, 2024. I'm joined today by Noel Atchison, editor of Crypto is Macro Now, a sentiment we discuss a great deal here on Real Vision. Noel, welcome back. Thank you so much, Ash. Great to be here with you. Well, it's always a pleasure to have you with us, but especially today, so much happening. U.S. equity markets uh, at or near all-time highs. Lots happening in the Bitcoin story, uh, geopolitics. Noel, where do we begin? Where do we begin? I ask that every single day and I have yet to figure out the answer. But a fascinating point to start with is stories. I mean, everyone loves stories, right? And what are the stories driving markets? My big concern at the moment is, well, plenty of concerns, but the main ones are the complacency that we're seeing in the stock market combined with some of the conflicting narratives driving the Bitcoin market at the moment. And if you like, we start with the stock market, the complacency, we're seeing rates expectations recalibrate and yet stock markets continue to go up. We're seeing geopolitical tensions escalate pretty much everywhere. And yet we're seeing stocks continue to go up. And there's just a lot that investors are not taking into account. My theory is it's because they don't really understand the risks. Therefore, they're just not going to think about them. Well, let's break them down one at a time, Noel. You talked about geopolitical risk. You talk about rate repricing. First of all, what's your big picture thesis on where we are with the Fed and the interest rate environment? Let's start there. Well, finally, we're getting some signs of a bit more common sense from the markets. Just at the beginning of this year, Ash, you remember that the market was pricing in a 100% probability of the first rate cut coming in or before March. And that's two months from now. That is absolutely insane because there has been no indication whatsoever from the economic data or from Fed officials that this is even on the table. And the only reason the Fed would cut so soon if things were so bad and why on earth would stock prices go up if they're that bad they're not that bad the economic data is showing us that and yet while that means that there is less likelihood we'll get a rate cut in before march there is a greater likelihood that the economy is doing just fine we're seeing stock markets go up for the first time in ages ash this actually shows that Good news could be good news. Do you remember back when every, every single positive information piece we'd get from the data reporters, it would be a bad, bad news and the stock market would decline? Well, now we're back and good news is good news, but it's all very, very confusing because the outlook for risk assets, including stocks, is not great. 
Yeah, we had this entire generation growing up to think that good news was bad news and bad news was good news when it came to uh, central bank activity and U.S. risk asset prices. We're finally over, well, actually, we're over uh, 410 bips right now in the U.S. Treasury. We cracked uh, the 4% mark, I guess it was last week. Talk a little bit about that pricing uh, in terms of the cash market for U.S. bonds. You're seeing yields go up. Again, finally, they were way too low for a while there. And we're seeing stock prices go up again. Something is just not adding up. It's not even the necessary, you know, the, the discounting and the valuations that should be affected by this. It is the alternative returns. I saw a chart this morning, Ash, that showed that for the first time since 2002, the current yield on the S&P is around about the same as the yield on the 10-year treasuries. That makes absolutely no sense. In other words, the equity risk premium has disappeared, and you got to ask yourself why. What? So, what's your answer to that hypothetical, Noel? What could it be? <laughs> I don't actually have one other than complacency. The investors, as I mentioned earlier, I think there's overlooking the economic risks, and they are especially, as you alluded to earlier, Ash, overlooking the geopolitical risks. And so we've got intensification in Gaza this morning, which is heartbreaking. We've got the Ukraine war spluttering along with more loss of life on both sides. We've got uh, Iran and the United States closer to war than they have been in decades. And it is now looking increasingly likely that Trump will be the Republican nominee, as well as probably the next president of the United States. And that is triggering unease around the world, but not only from uh, countries that the U.S. is not that friendly with, but even from U.S. allies and bringing it back home, Ash, from U.S. multinationals. Trump's foreign policy has been so far erratic, to say the least. And the, these levels of risk are just not being priced in. We've seen this in the sharp reaction to rates expectations, which was pretty much priced for perfection, Stock market is just not registering that yet. Yeah, so let's take the political piece in just a second, but let's focus on the geopolitical aspect of what we're seeing in terms of conflict. Obviously, uh, some terrible human tragedies going on all across the world on a human level, but let's talk about it in the context of markets, which is what we're here to do. By the way, it's official. Dow Jones Industrial Average closing above 38,000 for the first time ever. S&P uh, also breaking a new record high today. So where do you think about, like, your like your thesis for how you can see this disconnect between uh, clearly rising geopolitical risk uh, versus uh, all time highs on major U.S. equity indices. I mean, is this a flight to quality? Is there some logic behind this? I don't think it's really logic. I do think it is a very human instinct, which is actually common in markets. What we're living is not particularly out of the norm. A very human instinct of if you don't understand something, let's just ignore it. And that's not unfair because the geopolitical risk that the world is facing at the moment is very hard to quantify. I mean, nobody really wants to spend a lot of time thinking about this because there's so many causalities as well as as well as um, coincidences, as well as uh, correlations intertwined here. We don't really want to go down that rabbit hole that much. So let's not even bother with including that in our valuations, let's stick to what we know. We know earnings, we know rates expectations, we know liquidity measures. So we're focusing on that. The danger is there is risk out there. And the danger is what is going to cause that to change quickly? Well, actually something happening to disrupt oil supplies, to disrupt global trade, to disrupt some of the, the trade alliances that have kept the global commerce functioning for so many decades. 
There's yeah. a lot of risk out there, arguably more than there has been in recent decades. The market is so far ignoring that. But you know what? That is understandable. That is not necessarily incorrect either, because when you put yourself in the shoes of professional investors, well, their clients or their trustees don't really want to hear you talk about everything that is going wrong. They want to hear about manageable risk and manageable rewards. So the market is continuing to ignore the risks that are building. I think the bond market is starting to reflect them slightly better now. The oil market popped above $80 for the first time this morning in quite a while. So that's the markets are telling different stories. And of course, we're seeing totally different narratives over in the crypto market as well, which I could argue are perhaps yeah. reflecting better some of the larger macro risks of them. Well, let's talk about that because boy, that's an interesting story, what's happening over there. Obviously, we are now in the post-Bitcoin spot ETF world here in the United States. I'm looking at my screen right now on the ticker. Looks like Bitcoin has just dipped below $40,000. Big story out today from Coindesk suggesting that GBTC selling uh, over uh, at FTX as a consequence of this bankruptcy and unwind uh, might be driving prices lower. Coindesk, a place where both you and I worked and in fact met many years ago. Uh, give us your sense, Noel, on how that could be affecting uh, this market uh, and the broader context for where we are in the post-Bitcoin spot ETF world. I'm going to take a, a view on this, Ash, that is perhaps not shared, not really consensus at the moment. And that I think the BTC drop that we're seeing at the moment is not as tied to the GBTC outflows as many think. I do think it is more of a macro story as well. Bitcoin, as you and I have talked about often, Ash, is a, still a macro asset. It is not correlated, obviously, to equities as it used to be, but it is driven by liquidities and it is driven by geopolitical uh, concerns and it is driven by rates expectations. Now, going back onto what you were referring to earlier on the GBTC and the story out on Coindesk today that FTX estate has been selling roughly $1 billion worth of GBTC into the market. That's actually good news, Ash. That's good news because it shows that about a third of the GBTC exits were from the FTX estate and did not rotate into the other newborns. Let's call them that. And that means that the net flows actually were higher. What we've been doing so far, Ash, is subtracting the GBTC outflows from the inflows into the newborns and taking that as the net flows. Well, I think we should take the FTX flows out of that equation because they were not sales by traders. They were not sales from investors rotating into a different product. So this means that the net inflows were actually greater. And that means that the interest is strong. And that means that we will start to see the benefits of that going forward. I think the GBTC, sorry, I think the Bitcoin drop that we've seen today is to do with the building concern that we're seeing in the bond markets, as well as some of the geopolitical risk around the world. By the way, as soon as you started talking about bullish sentiment on Bitcoin, Noel, uh, it ticked up above 40,000 again. I'm sure entirely not a coincidence. I have that effect on the market, obviously. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about the relationship between Bitcoin uh, and the U.S. bond market. Uh, it's great to have you on to talk about this because you really do know both sides of the equation. What's the relationship? How do you think about the relationship between crypto uh, and U.S. treasuries and the bond market more broadly? Well, obviously, crypto is not well, Bitcoin. Let's focus on that. It's not a yield-bearing asset. So when yields are high and a safe asset, then that does have a relative, it's relatively attractive compared to some of the higher risk Bitcoin. Now, there's two threads to pull on this, Ash, and they're very interesting. And it shows how fascinating the crypto market is. 
I said, I mentioned earlier, and I'll stick by that, that Bitcoin could be reacting to some building concerns in the macro environment, and as, as we're seeing through the bond yields creeping up. That is because the things are getting risky. You want a safe asset. U.S. Treasuries are safe. You want to hold dollars as well. They're safe. So we could be seeing some rotation from Bitcoin into U.S. Treasuries and dollars from U.S.-based institutional investors, for instance. Now, let's step back and look at broader geopolitical risk, which tends to make Bitcoin even more attractive. We have a lot of elections coming through in this year. Around roughly half the world's population will go to the polls this year, Ash. And we're seeing at the same time an inexorable march towards greater authoritarianism in many of the regimes that will be holding elections. There was a poll published in Bloomberg, I think it was just last week, that showed it was, it was a poll taken across the African continent, which showed that roughly 60% of respondents do not have faith in democracy anymore. And this is just mind-blowing, especially for us who are sitting in fairly comfortable democracies. 24 African countries are going to the polls this year. So we're seeing similar trends here in Europe, distressingly. We, can, we should watch the upcoming elections very closely, because if we do see greater march towards more authoritarian regimes, then that is a strong case for Bitcoin. That is a strong case for individuals anywhere who want to maintain not just their savings, but also their financial access and independence. Geopolitical risk is good for crypto assets such as Bitcoin, but at the moment, the flows are being dominated by institutional investors, by traders, and they are focusing more on the short-term impact, the short-term alternative of higher yielding, safe U.S. treasuries and dollar deposits. Hey, everyone, we're going to take a quick break right now to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah, it's so interesting when you talk about the rise of authoritarianism. Uh, for those of us who are in the middle of our careers, who came of age between that magic window between the fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 uh, and uh, September 11th, it really did feel as if the world was only going in one direction toward democracy, uh, toward greater uh, liberalization of markets, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and boy, has it been a rude awakening when you cite statistics like 50% of the global population does not have faith in democracy. Yeah, well, I don't know about the global population. This was 60% of the Af of those responding to the survey across the continent of Africa. But 50% of the global population do go to the polls. And, and this survey doesn't even take into account what's been happening in Indonesia or in India, even more importantly. Russia is going to elections today. I wonder what, what Putin's chances are. Though, again, the march towards authoritarianism, is, it's, dis it's distressing. And this is not even taking into account a potential resolution in the war of the war in Ukraine, which may not have the ending that we all fervently hope. Now, while we're talking about global geopolitics, the big picture and Bitcoin, I want to run a clip. Uh, this is from a, a piece that I did called the Comprehensive Guide to Bitcoin Investing uh, between Brian Estes of Off-Chain Capital and myself. This clip's a little bit longer than usual, but it really sets up a lot of the broader, bigger picture points that we're talking about here. So we wanted to bring you this clip. Let's take a look. So economics 101 for Bitcoin. So the supply of Bitcoin is fixed at 21 million. The issuance of Bitcoin and how Bitcoin gets created, it's on a predetermined um, software you know, algorithm. And so when it started, it was 50 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And then it got cut in half to 25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And that having 
is every 210,000 blocks. And it takes about 10 minutes to create a block. So 210,000 times 10 minutes is about every four years. So about every four years, the supply, the reward that gets sent out to the people who clear the transactions on that work, that reward gets cut in half. So it went from 50 to 25 to 12 and a half. Right now it's six and a quarter Bitcoin rewards every 10 minutes, which is about 900 Bitcoin a day. And then in April, it's going to get cut in half again, the three and an eighth. And then in 2028, it's going to get cut in half again. And that's why I keep happening. There's going to be 32 of those halvings until all the Bitcoins created. Okay. So right now there's been 19.6 million Bitcoin created and rewarded out to the people clearing the transactions out of the 21 million. So 93% of all the Bitcoin that can be created has already been created. It's gonna take about 120 years to create that last 7%. So that's the supply of Bitcoin. If we look at the demand of Bitcoin, and a, a good way to do this is look at the number of Bitcoin wallet addresses. Bitcoin wallet addresses since 2012 have been growing at around 60% a year. And so if you have the number of you know, demand going up at 60% a year, and you have the supply decreasing, the only other variable is the price. And that's why the price goes up. It's just simple supply demand economics. Boy, Noel, that was a great segue with what we were just talking about. Uh, Brian Estes talking about the underlying supply and demand of Bitcoin uh, and the dynamics thereof uh, with everything that's happening in the broader world. Uh, give us your sense on those points uh, and pick up wherever you like. I have two uh, threads to add to that. I mean, first of all, excellent explanation from Brian, one of the smartest people in crypto. To add to that, Ash, there is another liquidity crunch uh, for uh, Bitcoin. It's not just the re reduction in the selling pressure that we will be having after the halving. It's also the fact that the percentage of Bitcoin that is socked away in longer term addresses, 70%. Of Bitcoin, over 70% of Bitcoins are in circulation, has not moved in over a year. And of course, the, some of this Bitcoin could come into the market as prices rise and, and holders take profits. 40, 60%, 60% has not moved in two years. 40%, Ash, hasn't moved in three years when those holders could have sold at a handsome profit at any time over the past 12 months. The point there is that Bitcoin heading into longer term holdings is steadily increasing. And that means even less Bitcoin will be available for new entrants into the market. So it's not just the supply demand balance that will shift drastically after the halving that Brian was talking about. There are other forces going on here. And, and the second thread, Ash, to tie this into what we were talking about before, if, G if Bitcoin is a hedge against craziness in the world, a hedge against economic uncertainty, a hedge against authoritarianism, if you like, then that infers, that implies that more Bitcoin will be heading into savings holdings, into longer term holdings, which means that the, the percentage that does not move is likely to continue increasing at an accelerating pace as the world gets just a little bit scarier. And that's not even taking into account some of the sovereign interest we're starting to see in Bitcoin for similar and other reasons. 
Well, let's pull on each of those threads one at a time. Uh, so the suggestion here that long-term holders of Bitcoin seem increasingly unwilling to part with the Bitcoin they already own uh, suggests that the supply and demand dynamics are influenced by that. The idea here being uh, essentially that you have an anchor on the price uh, and that you have the potential for more upside momentum in pricing, particularly, obviously, given the fixed supply and the halving schedule. Yes, and it's worth remembering, Ash, that Bitcoin is pretty much the only asset that is traded in liquid markets today, the only asset that is whose supply is not affected by the price at all. No matter what the price of Bitcoin, the supply will not change. You can't say that about stocks. You can't say that about bonds. You can't say that about real estate even. And you even can't say that about gold. If gold were to get up to $50,000 an ounce, suddenly there would be new types of mining. They would be mining on asteroids and from seabeds. Right. Suddenly the supply would shift. Bitcoin, I might, I might quit my job care. at Real Vision and grab a pick and a, and a pan if gold were to $50,000 <laughs> an ounce, right? I mean, but to your point, um, th this idea that it's the only asset uh, that we have in the world, uh, at least major traded asset that has a completely fixed supply schedule. Doesn't mean the price is always going to rise, but it is an unusual Absolutely. dynamic. Absolutely. And the reason the price isn't going to always rise is because there is no cash flow. There is no fundamentals on which to establish a, a, a consensus value, if you like. It is always going to be narrative based. And that is going to all, that is, in my opinion, that is going to make Bitcoin always a volatile asset. Many say that with greater liquidity, we're going to have lower volatility. And I disagree. I do think volatility is actually a feature of Bitcoin, not a bug. It is why many people do come into the market. And it's also why many of the market makers are working hard to provide the liquidity that the institutional investors need today. So Bitcoin narrative driven. Hard supply. It is fairly unique in that respect and is also unique, Ash, and this is significant given some of the ructions we could be seeing in markets this year. It is traded globally 24-7, 365. There are very few other assets that can say that. We're going to take another quick break to hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back with more of the day's top analysis on the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Yeah. Well, as you know, I'm fascinated by Bitcoin, but let me play the skeptic here uh, and pull on the second thread, this notion uh, that geopolitical uncertainty could increase the price of Bitcoin. Certainly one thesis. Flip side of that argument, uh, we've seen geopolitical uh, challenges. And what we see is Bitcoin correlated highly uh, to the uh, price of money here in the United States. In other words, when the Fed uh, is accommodative, the price of Bitcoin rises. Uh, when the Fed uh, is not accommodative, when they're constricting the monetary supply, uh, it has often fallen. Uh, the idea here being that Bitcoin is a hedge against inflation would seem, uh, at least in, during those phases, you know, call it 2020 uh, to uh, 2023, would seem to suggest uh, that maybe the correlation runs in reverse. Is there any evidence of Bitcoin as a true geopolitical risk hedge uh, that we can point to directly? Yes and no. And I'll say, I'll take the no part first. The geopolitical risk has been constant, especially since 2020, but arguably it is starting to accelerate now. So we haven't really seen that tested. Okay, that can be argued. There's been conflict going on, but we haven't really had the superpower tension that we have today. So like, no, perhaps in that we don't really know yet. I will say yes. Do you remember back in the banking crisis in March of last year, Bitcoin spiked because suddenly the fragility of the US banking system was exposed. So yes, it could. there is evidence that it could be a hedge against fragility in the banking system. Let's hope we don't go through that kind of thing again. Longer term is when it really matters. And this is where the amount of Bitcoin available for new investors uh, comes in again, Ash. 
longer term, if you are uncertain about your ability to access your savings, then you're going to just put whatever you can into Bitcoin steadily going forward. This is also especially important in times of currency turmoil. I saw today an article saying that the Naira is at record lows and people are scrambling for dollars. We know of many other countries in which citizens and businesses are scrambling for dollars and sometimes even governments can't get enough dollars to pay for the oil that they need to help their economies run. Now, what if, Ash, what if there were an asset that could be held by individuals, businesses and even governments that could be converted into dollars at any time, 24-7, 365, an asset that is not beholden to the monetary policies of third countries and cannot be confiscated according to your allegiances. All right, Noel, you are obviously a fan favorite because we have more questions coming in than I think we're going to have time to answer. But I wanted to just dive in uh, and touch on these because we've got some good ones. First question comes to us from David Stiles. Uh, good afternoon. BTC so close to breaking 40,000, he means on the downside. Uh, if it does, is 35,000 possible? He's asking about a support level here. Uh, give us uh, your sense on whether uh, that is something you think about. There is definitely potential for it to go lower than 40,000. It would be unfortunate, but it would be temporary. The, it did break down well below 40 while I was watching it this afternoon, thinking, what is going on? It bounced again, which showed that 40 could be the support. I could be wrong, it could be 35. But either way, it's not necessarily going to be that material because we know, I mean, we know of many investors waiting in the wings to be able to buy the dip. There's a very different mood from capital allocators this cycle. It is very much the fear of missing out. We talk about that a lot in crypto. We talk about that in all markets, let's face it, but it's especially acute in crypto at the moment. Because of the differences of this cycle compared to the last one, and the ETFs have a role to play in that. The last cycle, there was still career risk in suggesting a Bitcoin allocation to a macro portfolio. This cycle, there's more career risk risk in not doing so. However, given the sharp run-up that we saw in the before the ETF approvals, before they started trading, many investors that I personally have spoken to even have said that they think they've missed it. But if it goes back below 40, then we could see some support come in. And another reason that we always see support come in when Bitcoin dips is because of the diversity of use cases that we referred to earlier, the hedged for political risk, the speculation, the, the technology asset investments. There's so many narratives behind Bitcoin, one of the reasons it's so volatile, but it's also one of the reasons why it tends to have a much stronger support than you can say from any other liquid asset. Still up on my screen above 40,000, David. Uh, next question comes to us from Bo Nito. Uh, Noel, do you have any thoughts on insider selling during the past rally? I think Bo's talking about uh, U.S. equity markets. Uh, anything you would like to add on insider selling during the last rally and perhaps uh, something to do with earnings? I haven't seen any evidence of insider selling. Markets are relatively volatile. The VIX has been ticking up over the past few days. And insider selling evidence, I haven't seen any of that. But we can assume that there's probably some of it that goes on generally. And I can hope that the SEC are going to be as on top of that as they have been on top of the crypto markets recently. Yeah. Uh, okay. Next question comes to us from the Macro Butler. Uh, Noel, it seems that the, this ATH, that's all too time high, uh, is hated as the AAII bull bear ratio, uh, that's the uh, uh, American Association of Individual Investors, is still far from the highs seen in mid-December. Is there more melt-up? There could be. Uh, there's a lot of 
complacency, as we were talking about before. And let's face it, the earnings that we're seeing so far are not bad. And rates will be coming down soon. So there's the liquidity push. And the liquidity conditions are actually pretty loose anyway. And every single day that we don't get bad news is another day we don't get bad news. And that tends to reinforce the optimism. We're seeing encouraging data coming through on retail sales. We see encouraging data coming through on consumer confidence. We've got GDP coming out this week, which will probably beat to the upside. And the consensus forecast is for 2% for Q4, which is lower than for Q3. But the Atlanta Fed GDP now model tends to be much more accurate, and that's going for 2.4, which is pretty darn good when you take into account we're supposed to be in a recession now. Doesn't look like that's happening. And the calls that I'm hearing that we are not going to get a recession, this is definitely the no landing, It's they're getting louder and louder. So yes, there could be some more run up. I personally am skeptical of that of any kind of consensus, but especially a consensus that is based on hope rather than reality. Understandable, though, you can't really afford to be out of the market when it's running up like this. It sounds like what you're saying is when markets become irrational, they're more likely to stay that way than to reverse course in short order. Inertia, momentum, and call it all sorts of things. Yeah. yeah so well said. Uh, next question comes just from Paul English. What does this move forcing the trading of treasuries into a central clearinghouse mean for investors? Any thoughts? Uh, give us a little bit of background and context on this. This is about U.S. Treasury market uh, overhauling their regulations uh, in a compliance with new SEC regulations. For, focus, uh, for folks who don't focus on the bond markets, tell us a little bit about what that means. If you're talking about the SEC regulation that the treasuries are going to be centrally cleared as of from 2026, if I'm not mistaken, it's a about time. It's a very, very welcome measure, very necessary measure. One thing that I've been very concerned about, one of the risks that I've had on my list that has been growing by the day, has been a treasury market breakdown. That has been one of the factors that I've had on my list of why the Fed could cut rates before the inflation rate is sustainably down around 2%. And that has been the treasury market breaking. They are traded in a very opaque manner at the moment. There's not much insight into who's buying at any point in time. There have been settlement fails. I haven't seen the settlement fails for the past couple of weeks, but there was a time towards the end of last year that they were climbing and that is worrying. So the treasury market, especially hearing like treasuries are the most liquid asset in the world. They are responsible for a big chunk of market collateral. And should anything go wrong there, that would be catastrophic. That would necessitate some Fed intervention. And that would spook investors into bringing asset prices down for quite some time. So Yes, fix the treasury market. I think this is a very, very good idea. The downside is it is going to increase some trading costs. But I do believe, given the importance of the assets that we're talking about here, the market will uh, absorb them and the market will function better. So, so is the idea here, Noel, generally that if you sort of essentially clear these U.S. treasuries, you're going to have less risk of the, the flash crashes we see. It seems like almost every like five years, I think there was one in 2014, there was one in 2021. The idea is that central clearing will have the ability to stabilize those markets, but add a bit of incremental cost on the back end. Yes, because there will be a central counterparty that assumes the risk, uh, charges for assuming the risk, but it assumes the risk. And if ever there is a need to bail out the central counterparty, that can be arranged. Hopefully there would never need to be such a need. It functions much like securities markets function today, centrally cleared, and there is much less settlement risk, which makes the markets move much more smoothly. Again, this is a very important asset for global finance. And the fact that it has been trading in such a lunky old-fashioned way so far is something I think that many investors have been overlooking. 
Yeah. We have a bunch more questions that I just unfortunately don't think we're going to have time to answer. But I did want to ask you this question, this last question that comes from Ralph Humphrey, because it just cuts straight to the point. Uh, the question is, for Noel, where is the alpha? If I knew, probably, you know, I would be in the you know, Sunday or climb. Um, the, I don't know. I'll be honest with you. I just don't know. There is no, it depends which market you're looking for. Uh, you're looking at, and it depends what data points you think are going to be driving narratives going forward. But as I've been talking about with you, Ash, today, narratives are all over the place at the moment. And that is a very confusing time. I don't ever recall seeing markets this confused and this narrative driven and this buffeted by changes in expectations, by Fed words, by um, news coming out of the Middle East, by news coming out of uh, Russia, it's really a fascinating time to be trying to extract what are investors thinking of, what is going to make them change their mind, and what lies ahead for the world's largest economies, the United States, China, Europe, and further on down the list. Very uncertain times. As for the alpha, I actually truly do not know. <laughs> no, you made me a little bit nervous there in those last few moments. Sorry about that, Ash. Not my intention. I think when it comes to um, investing, my approach has always been longer term. So alpha is not necessarily an issue. I tend to look for the geopolitical trends that will shape narratives. Short term, we're seeing uh, you know hope and complacency, as I've been saying. Longer term, I do think reality is going to set in. And that is where there are many, many opportunities. That's one of the reasons I follow the crypto market so closely, Ash, as you and I have talked about often, is because the world is changing irrevocably. Uh, it wasn't just the pandemic. This has been going on for the past couple of decades. We're seeing a shift in expectations of what we even expect from capitalism. We're seeing a shift in what we expect from globalism. Economic orthodoxy is being thrown out of the window, and we don't really know what's ahead. So when's, where's the alpha? Hard to say when things are moving so fast, which is why a longer-term view that change is going to be the constant, what assets and what sectors and what regions or jurisdictions can benefit from that. Well, that is where I'm focusing most of my attention at the moment. Right now, that is crypto. That is some of the emerging economies. That is some radical economic uh, experimentation, such as that going on in Argentina. And the number one takeaway that we're all going to get from this is just learning a whole lot more about how the world works. Because you know the saying, Ash, the best way to see how something works is to break it. <laughs> Noel, that is probably the perfect place to end it. Uh, always enjoy it when you join us. Thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much, Ash. It's been fun as always. Thanks, Noel. Before you go, we're giving away free NFTs for all our new Real Vision members. The pre-mint is open now. The mint opens on Jan 25th and runs to February 1st. To be eligible for the mint, you have to open a freemium account. And on top of that, you get access to our new platform. So head over to realvision.com forward slash free RV NFT. That's realvision.com forward slash free RV NFT and sign up. Thank you all so much for watching or for listening to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. We'll be back again tomorrow, same place, same time. See you then, guys. Hey, everybody. Today's Real Vision Daily Briefing is sponsored by Engrave, maker of the coldest hardware wallet, Zero, and stainless steel backup graphene. Engrave brings you the highest security in a touchscreen experience to safely manage all your crypto offline. Enjoy a 10% Real Vision discount in engrave.io shop with the code RealVision.